by looking at verses 18 through 23. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from the Jordan, beyond the Jordan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... We have read your word as an act of worship, and indeed, it is our bread. It is strength and life to us. We ask now as we listen to uh, this word explained, that you would strengthen us, encourage us, convict us, and change our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the year uh, A.D. 312, there was a gentleman by the name of Constantine. And uh, at that period of time in the 4th century, he was battling for uh, preeminence in the Roman Empire. And on the eve of one of those great battles, he looked up into the heavens and he saw there imprinted in the sky, in Latin of course, in hoc signo winces, which means in this sign, conquer. As Constantine was looking up into the heavens and saw those words, the, the sign that he saw there supposedly was the sign of the cross. Constantine had that sign emblazoned on his shields, and he went on to conquer and become the supreme emperor of the Roman Empire. The next year in 313, Constantine issued what's been called the Edict of Milan. And in that edict... Christianity became identified as an official religion in the Roman Empire. Christians throughout the empire breathed a sigh of relief. Finally, we have some sense of freedom. We can worship freely all those except who saw martyrdom as the badge of Christian loyalty. Can you imagine how they must have felt having been persecuted under Nero and successive emperors from his time, severely being put to death and chastened and tortured. We too 
can have longings for something like that, can't we? Imagine if this evening the White House held a press conference and Joe Biden declared to us that he had converted to Christianity and that he was going to rule the land according to Scripture. That would be a profound change, wouldn't it? That would be an advance for the kingdom of Christ. It would be an answer to prayer, but it would not be the same as the growth of the kingdom. As Christ, here we we learn in chapter 4, begins His public ministry, we learn that He doesn't enact the kingdom, He doesn't enact His kingdom through legislation. There is no uh, group of uh, diplomats and representatives who sit down with Herod Antipas and say, hey, here are our thoughts, our demands. No boycotts. No political reform. Instead, the kingdom of Christ begins to grow in a very nondescript way by calling a couple of nobodies, fishermen beside the Sea of Galilee. We see that the kingdom of Christ grows as he calls individual men into it. Christ transforms lives one by one. And the growth of his kingdom is demonstrated through the transformation of those individual lives. We see in this passage, these few verses, verses 18 to 23, that the call of Christ and his ministry transforms both individual lives and cultures. Christ has now ventured into Galilee. Remember last week we noticed that um, he has, because of the arrest of John, the location of his ministry has changed. He moved north into the region of Galilee or the bigger region of Syria as Matthew noted when we read just a moment ago. Will he do this as a loner? Is he going to carry on his ministry as a loner? Some sort of rejected prophet, sort of like John, living out in the wilderness, clothed in camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. No, we learn uh, John was a a faster, uh, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, but Jesus, in fact, does come eating and drinking to the point that he's called a glutton and a drunkard. The ministry of Christ now begins full bore, as it were, as he calls these men to himself. We notice, first of all, from the text that the call of Christ is personal, it's authoritative, and it is transformative. The call of Christ is a personal call. Many of you know this. If if you've been converted to Christ later in life, you'll, you'll re- reflect upon the fact you'll give your testimony and, and oftentimes you'll talk about a moment in your life when, when things just changed. Maybe the truth of Scripture sort of it just came together. It clicked for you. And the Bible itself became authoritative in your life and, and you began to look to it and compare yourself to the teachings of Scripture and say, I need to change that. Maybe... Certain of your pet sins just fell away. And you had a a victory. We notice that the call of Christ is a personal call. Notice how Jesus 
met these men in verse 18. While he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, or as we sung just a moment ago, and as Luke says, the Lake of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. One thing you ought to know is that Jesus sought these men out. This is not the first encounter that Peter and Andrew and James and John had with Jesus. In John's gospel, he notes in John chapter 1, verse 35 and following, that as, John was, was, uh, as Jesus was teaching, um, it, coming along, John the Baptist saw him from afar. And as we sang just a minute ago, he cried out upon seeing Christ, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, in that moment, all of John's disciples turned and they looked and they beheld Christ. One of those disciples of John was a man by the name of Andrew. And Andrew turned and he started to follow Christ. Now Christ still has his southern ministry at this point in the region of Judea. And John become, or Andrew became so convinced of Christ being the Messiah, Christ being the Christ, that he went and got his brother. He said, Simon, come. Come, I want to introduce you to Jesus. And Simon came with him. And Jesus looked at Simon and he said, your name is now to be called Peter. Which will take on enormous significance in just a few chapters in Matthew. So from that time, perhaps, they had some sort of intermittent uh, following of Christ. They'd go with him. They'd return to their labors in the ocean or the, the sea and the lake. But here... As Christ has turned his attention northward, as he's journeyed to Galilee, he went to find these men again. Andrew, having been a disciple of John the Baptist, knew of Christ, of course. But Jesus now looks upon them and he called them. Peter we know will become the most preeminent of all the, of all the disciples, of all the apostles. Andrew is only mentioned again when we have the list of the disciples in chapter 10. James and John are brothers also. James will become the first martyr, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 2, when he is killed by the sword at the hands of Herod. John, of course, is the beloved disciple. As we think about this personal call of Christ going to these men and calling them out by name, seeing them and drawing to them to Himself, I can't help but think of the words of Christ in John chapter 10 and verse 14. I know my own. If you know Christ, it is because He first knew you. He knows you by name. He has known you intimately from before the foundation of the earth. He's known your character, your nature, your weaknesses, your strengths, your faith, your lack of faith. And when He redeems you, when He calls you to Himself, He does so intentionally. 
Christ knows his own. And he demonstrated this in the call of Peter and Andrew, of James and John. But we also notice another thing about the call of Christ. Not only is it personal and intimate, but it is authoritative. We notice with me in verses 19 and 21. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Christ's call is authoritative in its form. One commentator notes about this is that what Jesus issues here is not an invitation. It's a demand. Jesus commanded the brothers saying, follow me. Notice also that his call is authoritative in its response. How did they follow Christ? Hesitatingly? No. Matthew says something very special here. Notice in verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Notice again in verse 22 with James and John the parallel. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus' call is authoritative in his response. It's interesting because Mark, in his gospel, uses the term immediately over and over and over again, so much so that we, we can lose the sense of it. Matthew doesn't do that. He only uses the term immediately 13 times in the whole gospel. So he's trying to draw your attention here. There was no debate. These men were ready to follow him. They were ready to go, why? Why would they be so ready that in the midst of doing what provided for their families, and we know that Peter has a family. He's got a mother-in-law. We'll learn later. Why would they set all of that aside? Well, because this is the work of the Holy Spirit. When Christ calls a man by His Holy Spirit, there's an inner transformation that takes place. He doesn't drag us along. We're saying, no, I don't really want to go. And He's just dragging us. Yeah, I know what's best for you. Just come on. I promise it's going to be okay. The work of the Holy Spirit is that He gives you an affection for Christ. And you love it. And there's nothing that you would not set aside for Him. It was customary that disciples would seek out a teacher in Jesus' day. They would, they would go and align themselves with a certain teacher and they would follow him. But here, here we see that the teacher is actually seeking out his own disciples. And this is a reminder of the biblical principle, listen, that God is a seeker. He is a finder. Christ is the good shepherd, we learn also in John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd who goes out and who gathers his sheep to himself. And this must be the case. Why? Because there's no one who seeks after God. He must find us first. They do not seek after him. Christ calls us. And listen, when Christ calls us, the work of the Holy Spirit enlivening our hearts enables us to say, there's the voice of my Master. And we follow Him. This is no less true for you and for me. 
When Christ calls you by his Holy Spirit, you will answer. There's no gripping the back of the pew. Lastly, we see that the call of Christ is transformative or transformational in verses 20 and 22. Notice again in verse verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. First of the thing you ought to notice here in the transformation of these men is that Christ took them away from their work. They laid down their nets. They left their father, Mark, points out out to us in Mark chapter 1 that when Christ called them, uh, James and John left Zebedee and the servants were in the boat and they followed him. Uh, Many years ago, Michelle and I were living in uh, Los Angeles and I was reading at that time a book called The Art of Man Fishing, which I recommend to you, Stephen Charnock. And I had this on my mind. And so I was traveling home on the metro train uh, back to where we lived. And I had a stop. And I got off and I was sitting next to this, this older gentleman. And we got to talking about fishing. And I thought, here's the perfect transition to the gospel. And I asked this man if he had ever fished for men. Well, naturally, in Los Angeles... Late at night, he gave me the proper look. There are better transitions to the message of the gospel than that one. But when Christ came to these men and said, I will make you fishers of men, perhaps they understood, perhaps they didn't, but what they did know is that Christ was calling them away. They had spent time with him before, but now was the time of a permanent change of vocation. And they set everything aside. And they left family. They left fishing. They left their vocation. Some liken this account to the call of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, where uh, the call of Elisha, where Elijah comes along and he took his mantle as Elisha was plowing the field and Elijah just laid his mantle on Elisha's shoulders and walked away. And Elisha said, what's going on? And Elisha followed after him, leaving his work behind. Christ's call did not just take them away from their work, but it took them away from their families. James and John left their father in the boat, mending the nets by himself and with his servants. I'm reminded as we think about this of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you have read his book, The Cost of Discipleship, where he opens up with these words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. What Jesus does in the redeemed man's life is give him, listen to me, a complete set of new priorities. The things of earth grow strangely dim, don't they? When we begin to reflect on the priority of eternal things. We think about the call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. 
God came to him after men in Genesis chapter 11 said, let's go, let's stop here in the plain of Shinar and let's build a tower and let's make a name for ourselves. Now, God himself, Jehovah, condescends. He came down to Abram and he said, Abram, I will make a name for you. And Abram, not knowing where he was going, simply understanding the promise, go where I show you, departed. He didn't know where Jehovah would take him, but he trusted Jehovah. Likewise, these disciples, they don't know. Likely they don't know where Christ will take them, but they went. It ought not be lost upon us that Christ selected four fishermen. Does that seem strange to you? Now, these would not have been the poorest of the poor in Judea at that time. But it's certainly strange to us. I mean, if I wanted to start a movement, I would start at the top. I would want to influence leaders, businessmen, the guys who know the community and have influence already so that I could piggyback on their influence to change the society. But Christ goes to fishermen. And all of this together, the intimacy of Christ's call, the transformation of Christ's call, the authority of Christ's call, all of this goes together to demonstrate to you and me the depth of God's love for His people. He doesn't make a name for Himself by riding on the coattails of those who are already wildly successful. God makes a name for Himself by taking the least of these and using them to save the world. The call of Christ is personal, it's authoritative, it's transformational. Secondly, the ministry of Christ transforms cultures. The second act here, if you will, Jesus shows us, Matthew points out to us, that Jesus' ministry was primarily a teaching and a preaching ministry. Notice verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. First and foremost, Jesus was a teacher, he was a preacher. He imparted information, training His disciples in the principles of Christian knowledge. He announced also or proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He declared the good news. He was a teacher and a preacher. We ought to note here that Matthew does something others don't. He he abbreviates. He calls it the gospel of the kingdom. But the kingdom... We understand it's not a thing, is it? We can't look here or there and say, here is the kingdom. The kingdom is a verbal noun which describes God's rule, which expands person to person as Christ calls us to Himself. God rules over us. (coughs) There is the kingdom of God wherever we find people, families worshiping Christ. This is the good news that Christ announced the gospel of the kingdom of God, he declared that the gospel, that the kingdom of God had come and he trained men to live in light of the coming of that kingdom. He taught and he preached in many places, didn't he? 
He went throughout the region, gathering disciples and teaching. But especially, notice again verse 23, he taught in their synagogues. The synagogue was kind of a community center. When it arose is a little bit of a mystery. Some people believe that after the destruction of the temple in around 587, 586 B.C., that Jewish, the Jews who had been taken into captivity, they had been sort of spread throughout the land. They'd been in Egypt and parts of Rome later on. That they came together wherever there were communities of Jews, they would build synagogues. And in these synagogues, they would read the Torah aloud, the five books of the law, and they would have a sermon in their worship, explaining some aspect of the law. They would also have judgment. So they would have judges who would preside over cases. And they would have findings and rulings. And to some certain extent, within the Roman Empire, they could carry it out. With one exception that will become important later. They could not carry out capital punishment. They could not put a man to death. So Pilate will become important. Jesus' ministry was one of teaching within these synagogues. We ought to recognize then that he, had, he was recognized with some authority in their midst. Not anybody, not any Joe could walk into the synagogue and say, hey, I've got a lesson today. Jesus was known to the synagogue rulers since the age of 12 when he taught in the temple, listening and asking questions. So we recognize that even here, Christ is known as a great teacher among them. But we also see that Jesus' ministry of healing indicates one thing. He is going throughout the region declaring the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, if the gospel, if the kingdom of God has come, what is something you might look for? Some indication of the kingdom. And Jesus does just that. He heals them. Notice, again, verse 23, we have a summary statement. He's going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Verse 24, we might add specifically, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them all. What's happening when Christ heals a man? Is he giving him his best life now? No. What's happening every time Christ heals a man, do you see that the curse is being rolled back? If you read the original, every, every single sickness is referred to with the Greek word kakos. It's a Greek word that means evil. Sickness is evil. Sickness is the result of sin. Sickness and death epilepsy, seizures, all of these things exist because of the result of Adam's fall. So what's happening is that every time Christ rules a man, uh, heals a man, He is rolling back the effects of that curse. 
He is demonstrating that He has authority, that He is inaugurating a new kingdom. He is bringing back Eden. He is making streams in the wilderness where once nothing grew, now everything will grow. He has come to reconcile, to heal, to make new everything under God's dominion. Let's note here, verse 25. In doing this, great crowds followed Him. Do you notice that Matthew is making a parallel? Jesus just commanded the disciples. He said, commandingly, follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. Well, Matthew notes that great crowds followed Him from Galilee, from the Decapolis along the eastern border of Galilee, a group of five cities, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Certainly, what he's doing is echoing the language that we began with in chapter 4, verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. These folks have seen a great light, and now they follow him. One important note of difference between the brothers and the crowds. We know for sure that these brothers were faithful to the very end. Peter, Andrew, as we've noted in Acts chapter 12, who gave his life, James, John, each one of these men would give his life for Christ. They would remain faithful to Him to the very end. We know that these crowds, on the other hand, many, if not most, finally abandoned Him. We ought to take this note away. That there are many who respond to the teaching and the miracles of Christ. So much so that there are many false teachers out there whose entire ministry is nothing but healing and miracles. That's how they attract the crowds. Not through their teaching and preaching. They give all of the sign and nothing of the substance. Many will respond positively to the proclamation of the kingdom. Especially when they believe it will help them solve some present problem. But only those who are called personally, authoritatively, and transformingly will endure to the end. It illustrates Christ's later principle from Matthew 22, verse 14, that many are called, few are chosen. And it provokes the question for you and me, am I following Jesus as one from the crowd? I want to feel better. I want to look better. I want people to like me. Or am I following him as one who has known his personal, authoritative, transforming call? Friends, we live in times where that distinction is going to become very, very clear. And the temptation for us, as perhaps for Constantine early on, was to say, I'm going, I want to bring about the kingdom of Christ through some legislation. I just want to make everybody at one time a Christian. I just want everything to change. 
And that's a good desire. But as you think about those things, remember the work of your Savior. That the transformation of cultures, the transformation of cultures comes not all at once, but one at a time. As you walk across the street and you take the gospel to your neighbor. As you speak to somebody by the water fountain. That's how the call of Christ goes out. One by one. And I will say this to you this morning. He's calling you right now. If you have not known the personal, authoritative, transforming call of Jesus Christ in your life, He's calling you right now. Will you answer Him? Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You sent Your Son to call His people to Himself. That even now, He is drawing out of the world living stones. Stones which are being built together into a glorious temple. A glorious temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. And we thank You that here a a portion of that temple is gathered. And that you are here in our midst, glorifying yourself through the preaching of your word, the praying of your word, and the singing of your word. Lord Jesus, help us. Call out from us those who are erring, wandering in sin, away from you. Send your Holy Spirit to draw them to know the everlasting life that comes only through you. We pray also and ask that you would hasten the coming of your kingdom. We long for the day when every sickness, every disease, every pain, the threat of death, the chastisement by demons, and the devil himself will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. And we will know peace. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.